Tale 11 of the Story of King Arthur. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel Maguire. The Story of King Arthur in Twelve Tales by Winona Caroline Martin. Tale 11 The Achieving of the Quest. Then suddenly he fell asleep in Christ, and a great multitude of angels bore his soul to heaven, and out of heaven there came the semblance of a hand that reaching down caught up the grail, and no man saw it more. Westward's Legend of the Siren Isles Although he had come to Camelot weaponless, Galahad had, as we know, soon won for himself a sword, yet he was still without a shield when he parted from his companions at the crossroads. Thus he rode, therefore but half-armed, for several days alone, until one afternoon, toward evensong, he chanced upon an abbey where he begged shelter for the night. There he found that another of the grail-seekers, Sir Bagdemagus, by name, had preceded him. As the two sat talking with the monks, the good brothers told them of a certain shield which had been in their abbey longer than the oldest man among them could remember, and about which there was a prophecy to the effect that none but the best knight in all the world might ever carry it without coming to grievous harm. Upon hearing this, Sir Bagdemagus, who seems to have been a man somewhat on the order of poor Barlin the Savage, exclaimed enthusiastically, "'Tomorrow I will try this adventure, and if I fail, you, Sir Galahad, may try it after me.' Accordingly, the following morning, as soon as they had heard Mass, the abbot himself, at the request of his guest, brought forth from its long resting place behind the high altar the mystic shield, and bound it upon the knight's neck, saying gravely, Sir Bagdemagus, I warn you to consider well before you bear this scutcheon in joust or battle. And indeed its very appearance might have caused a more cautious man to hesitate, for it was a wondrous thing with a ground as white as snow, upon which had been blazoned a blood-red cross. But Bagdemagus, quite undaunted, took it vauntingly, saying, however, to Galahad, Remain here for a short time, I pray you, and if I fail, my squire shall ride back to bring you the scutcheon. So the rash fellow set out, and had scarcely gone two miles before he beheld coming directly toward him, with lowered lance, a knight clothed in snow-white armour riding a milk-white steed. No sooner had the two crashed together than the stranger's spear, glancing past his opponent's shield, struck Bagdemagus through the shoulder so that he was instantly hurled from his horse. Thereupon the white knight dismounted also, and took the cross emblazoned scutcheon from his fallen foe, exclaiming, Sir Bagdemagus, it was folly for you to bear this shield. Were you not warned that none save the best and the purest might carry it in safety? Then, turning to the squire, he placed the mysterious thing in his hand saying, Bind your master upon his horse, and take him back to the abbey, where perchance he may be healed of his wound. But deliver the shield to Sir Galahad only, and bear him my greetings. The stranger vanished, and the squire obeyed his instructions, so that by noon on that selfsame day, it was Galahad's turn to fare forth upon the quest with the mystic scutcheon bound about his neck. He had not gone far, however, when he too chanced to meet with the white knight, who, instead of putting his spear in rest, reined his horse and greeted Galahad most courteously. "'Sir knight,' said he, "'that shield which you bear has truly a marvellous history.' "'So I am beginning to think, fair stranger,' replied Galahad. "'Will you be so kind as to relate it to me?' "'Gladly,' was the answer. "'It runs thus. "'In the days of Joseph of Arimathea, 
there reigned in the faraway city of Saris, a king whose name was Avalake. He was converted to Christianity by the preaching of the saintly Joseph, and bore that shield in a great battle that he waged against the heathen. When the victory was won, Joseph took the shield which had been blank till then, and with his finger traced upon it the outlines of that scarlet cross, saying that the colour would never grow dim until the last man of his own lineage should bind it upon his neck and thus fare forth on the quest of the Holy Grail. When Joseph came to Britain bearing the sacred cup, he brought this shield also and hid it away in the monastery to await your coming, Sir Galahad. Take it, therefore, and go forward until you attain the perfect vision. Having spoken thus, the white knight suddenly vanished, and Galahad rode on his way, alone meeting with many minor adventures, some of which have already been related, such as his joust with Lancelot and his rescue of Percival. One day in his wanderings he chanced upon the same half-ruined chapel where Lancelot had slept at the foot of the stone cross. He stepped inside and kneeled before the altar, praying for counsel as to what to do next, and as he prayed he seemed to hear a voice saying, Go, Galahad, to the castle of the maidens, and redress the wrongs of that wicked place. So he arose and fared on his way, until he saw looming before him in the distance a strong fortress with a deep moat around it, and a fair river running by. Seeing an old man hobbling along by the roadside, Galahad drew rein and inquired, Good sir, can you tell me the name of that castle yonder? That, was the reply is the castle of the maidens, and an accursed place it is, full of mischief and villainy. I advise you, Sir Knight, as you value your life, to turn back. But Galahad answered, I thank you, friend, but because of the danger, I will ride on, and he spurred his horse accordingly. Presently he met with seven maidens, who seemed to be fleeing from some danger unseen by him, and they called out to him in warning, Sir Knight, you ride in great peril. We advise you to turn back. Last of all, he was stopped by a young squire who delivered to him the following message. Sir Knight, the masters of this castle defy you and bid you come no farther on peril of your life unless you will show them what business you have here. My business, replied Galahad unflinchingly, is to destroy the wicked custom of this castle. Then you will have much to do, said the squire with a shrug of his shoulders. But Galahad only spurred his horse once more and rode forward until he saw issuing from the castle gate, seven mighty knights in black armour, bearing deadly black weapons. With one furious bound they were upon him, but he, thrusting forth his spear, smote the foremost to the ground, and managed to ward off the blows of the others, whose lances, the moment they came in contact with the mystic shield, were shivered in pieces. Then he drew out his trusty sword, and set upon his opponent so fiercely that he drove them before him, step by step, to the very gate where he slew them to the last man. And now he was able to pass as far as the inner portal of the castle, where he was greeted by the keeper, an aged man in cloak and hood of purest white. Galahad, said the warder, thank God you have now overcome the brothers of darkness, the seven deadly sins, who for long years have kept imprisoned the gentle maidens known as the virtues and has slain every knight who has tried to come to the rescue. Take, therefore, the keys to the castle, for you have vanquished those who menace the integrity of your soul. So Galahad obeyed, reverently, unlocking the inner gate and passing into the fortress where he was greeted by a great multitude of fair maidens, pure and sweet as flowers, upon which the morning dew still sparkles, who gathered about him shyly to express their gratitude.
brave and noble knight, said they. You are welcome indeed. Long have we awaited this deliverance. Then they told him of the wicked custom of the castle, and of the seven cruel brothers whose delight had been the slaying of good knights, who rode accompanied by fair damsels so that they, they might capture the maidens and make them prisoners behind those gloomy walls. In fact, of late, they added, they have slain every knight who rode by, because she who is the true mistress of the castle, from whom they took it by force of arms, had prophesied that one day a man who rode alone would overthrow them all. And where is this lady? inquired Galahad. She languishes, was the reply, in the deepest and darkest dungeon of the fortress. She is the fairest of our number, sir knight, for her name is Love. Then Galahad turned and strode through many a winding passage, opening doors that had long remained closed, sometimes almost losing his way in the gloom, until at last he found the dungeon which, however, was illumined by the very presence of that loveliest of all the virtues in whom no darkness is. Then he released the maiden, restoring to her her lost inheritance, and causing all the barons of the country to do her homage. After which, with perhaps his first lingering look behind, he mounted his horse and fared forth once more upon the quest. It was not long after this adventure that he found himself accepting the hospitality of the same kindly hermit who had entertained Lancelot and Bors, and that night, while the weary Galahad slept, a maiden appeared to the holy man, requesting speech with his guest, and refusing to wait until morning. Sir Galahad, said she, when he had come forth to greet her, you must ride with me at once. And in spite of the strangeness of the request, Galahad prepared to obey, for both he and the hermit felt that it was the right thing for him to do. So he armed himself, leaped on his charger, and followed his guide for the remainder of the night through the deep shadows of the forest, until when morning dawned he saw before him a vast expanse of sea. Near the shore there lay moored a little ship with the wondrous canopy of white samet. The maiden tied her palfrey to a tree, bidding Galahad do likewise with his charger. Then she preceded him on board the boat, where to his surprise and joy he found Bors and Percival apparently anxiously awaiting his coming. When the first glad greetings were over, the maiden, who had been his guide, turned to Percival, inquiring, Sir Knight, do you know me? No, replied Percival in wonder. Fair maiden, I do not. I am your sister, said she whom you have not seen since I entered the convent, and you rode away to become a knight of the round table. Then, before her brother had fully recovered from his surprise, she added gravely, But come, all three of you, that I may show you the marvels of our little vessel. Wondering more and more, the young men followed her until they came to a table upon which was lying a sword in a scabbard of serpent skin. The hilt was of finest gold set with lustrous jewels, and all about the weapon was beautiful, except the girdle which was fastened to it. This seemed to be made of frayed hemp, neither strong nor fair. Sir Galahad, this sword is for you, said Percival's sister. Henceforth you will need a better one even than that which you drew from the marble. There is none stronger than this, unless it be Excalibur, for it belonged to King David in ages past and this little ship was built for you by his son Solomon, who, as you know, was the wisest man that ever lived. He had a wife, however, who in one thing was wiser than he, for when he bid her make a girdle that should be worthy of so wondrous a weapon, she, to his dismay, made this, 
saying that it should remain upon the sword until the coming of the best knight in all the world, at which time a new belt would appear representing a maiden sacrifice of the thing of which she was most proud in all the world. Then Solomon acknowledged his wife's wisdom, and having laid sword and sheath and girdle in this ship, which he called Faith, set the tiny craft adrift upon the blue waters of the Mediterranean, where it has floated up and down ever since, unseen by man, awaiting your coming. O Galahad, the one perfect knight without fear and without reproach. That is a wondrous story indeed, said Galahad, taking up the sword that he might examine it more closely. But where, after all, is the girdle, for this will scarcely hold? Then the maiden drew forth from the folds of her garments a silver casket which she opened with a tiny golden key that hung about her neck. Within lay a belt that seemed to have been spun from the finest threads of purest gold, so soft was it to the touch, and so brightly did it sparkle in the morning sunlight. With hands that trembled slightly, she fastened the sword to it, and then bound it to Galahad's side, saying softly, My knight, my love, my knight of heaven, O thou, my love, whose love is one with mine, I, maiden, round thee, maiden, bind my belt. Go forth, for thou shalt see what I have seen, and break through all, till one will crown thee king, far in the spiritual city. And as she spoke, sending the deathless passion in her eyes through him till he too believed in her belief, he perceived that the girdle was made of the maiden's own beautiful hair, which she had cut off upon forsaking the world for the cloister. Presently he realised that she was speaking again. My work is ended now, she was saying in a voice in which there was no trace of sadness. My soul will soon be free. Therefore do not grieve for me, but set my body adrift in the little boat that you will find when the time comes. Then continue on your way to the castle of Carbonek, where King Pelles awaits you for the healing of his wound. And indeed within a few days it had all fallen out just as the maiden had foretold, so that one fair morning when Percival's sister was no more, the three knights found themselves nearing land with the towers and battlements of Carbonek looming out of the mist before them. In their case, however, there were no lions to bar the way, but respectful porters who threw wide the gates at their approach, as if they were expected guests. They were presently ushered into the same great banquet hall, where Barlin had, for the first and last time, come face to face with his mortal foe, but there was no feast in progress now. The knights and ladies of the court were there assembled, it is true, yet a strange hush seemed to have settled over the entire company, for on a dais, elevated above the heads, lay the wounded king with eyes closed, and a pallor in his cheeks, that might well have been mistaken for the pallor of death had not a breath like a deep sigh escaped his white lips from time to time. Presently, as the three knights stood gazing in mute surprise at the strange scene, a door at the farther end of the hall swung noiselessly back upon its hinges, and Galahad alone, of all the company, became aware of the fact that a marvellous procession of mysteries was about to pass through the chamber. Bors and Percival saw only a glorious light, and the other occupants of the room apparently saw nothing at all. First came that familiar white-robed figure whose face was concealed by no hood now, but upon whose head sparkled a golden crown. He bore before him, held aloft in both hands, the mystic grail itself, covered with white silk, through the transparent texture of which a soft ruby glow penetrated illuminating the whole room. Behind him came a maiden in the scarlet robe of shame, bearing upon a golden salver the halo-circled head of John the Baptist, and following her were two knights, each with a seven-branched golden candlestick, 
while last of all there appeared another knight carrying the bleeding spear with which Balin so long ago had dealt the dolorous stroke. And now upon sight of that spear Galahad suddenly came to a full realisation of his errand in the castle of the Grail. With a heart filled with pity for human sin and suffering such as he, in his utter purity, had never known before, he stepped forward and touched the bleeding point of the mystic spear. Then he mounted to the king's side and applied that drop of blood to the gaping wound. Thereupon a wondrous thing happened. For one brief moment the long-suffering monarch stood erect upon his feet, with life and health bounding once more through his veins, as in the days of his youth. Galahad! Galahad, my grandson, he cried, how long have I awaited your coming in this glad day which marks at once the hour of my healing and of my blessed release from the thraldom of this world. But your work here, my son, is now accomplished, for you have healed my wound and you have seen the grail once more. Henceforth your duty lies far from the island of Britain in the spiritual city, the city of Saros. Tomorrow you must leave this land with your faithful companions and the Holy Grail will go with you for you are now its keeper on the earth. And with those words a light of joy unspeakable broke upon the old king's face whereupon he raised his eyes to heaven while his body sank lifeless at Galahad's feet. The following morning according to King Pella's dying command as well as in obedience to Galahad's own inner promptings the three knights set sail once more in the ship of Solomon. In the bow of the little craft shone a wondrous light which Galahad alone was able to recognise as proceeding from the Holy Grail, which was held in tender solicitude by an angel, who was also guiding the frail bark of human faith on its perilous journey across the boisterous sea. Thus they sailed for many days in sunlight and moonlight and starlight, and the Grail was ever with them, so that they knew neither hunger nor cold nor weariness, until at last, rising from the blue waves of the Mediterranean, they beheld the turrets and towers and battlements of the city of Saros, the spiritual city, over which King Everlake had ruled in the long ago. The angel had left them now, and the Grail stood upon a table of gold and silver in the bow of the boat, but it proved far too heavy to lift, even with the combined strength of the three mighty knights. As they drew to their moorings, therefore, Galahad, seeing a wretched cripple sitting by the water's edge, cried out to him, Come and help us, we pray you, to carry ashore this table with its sacred burden. The old man raised his bleared eyes, which saw nothing but the table in question, and answered in a shaking voice, Alas, stranger, I cannot help you, for it is many years since I stood upon my feet. Nevertheless, replied Galahad, come and do your best. With that, the cripple stretched forth his hands in an effort to rise, whereupon he felt a sudden rush of healthy blood coursing through his veins, and leaping joyfully forward, was able to assist the knights in bearing their precious burden to the altar of the great cathedral. Naturally, it was not long before the news of this and of other wonders was spread abroad through the town, and one or two ancient inhabitants went so far as to declare that the shield borne by the knight in the flame-coloured armour was none other than the one which had belonged to their own King Everlake of sainted memory. But he who at that time was sitting upon the throne of Saris was a usurper and a cruel tyrant. Therefore, when these rumours reached his ears, he called to mind an old prophecy which foretold that a man bearing such a shield should some day appear to reign over the spiritual city. Without loss of time, he sent for the strangers, saying that he wished to make them welcome at his court. But no sooner were they in his power than he caused them to be seized and thrown into the deepest and darkest dungeon of his castle. 
Strange to say, however, it was not the prisoners who languished, for to them the Holy Grail, though always veiled, appeared daily, transforming their dismal cell into the fairest palace that the heart of man could conceive, and as on board the ship they knew neither hunger nor thirst nor weariness, but awaited only the rapturous moment when they might behold the sacred chalice in open vision. With the king and his people, however, it was a very different matter. Plague and pestilence, drought and famine stalked abroad throughout the land, while the inhabitants whispered to one another, with white or stricken faces. Alas, these things have come upon us because our king has imprisoned the knight who bears the fateful shield. Many a deputation, therefore, did that stricken people send to their sovereign, imploring the release of the captives, to all of which he turned a deaf ear, until one awful day he awoke to the fact that he himself was a victim of the deadly plague, and that he had not many hours to live. Then, in all haste, he called for Galahad and his companions, saying, when the former stood before him in the full strength and vigour of his young manhood, "'Good night! My sins towards you have been my undoing, for you are that great one of whom the prophets have long foretold. Forgive me, and when I am gone, reign here in my stead. Thus shall this wasted land be restored to peace and plenty once more.' So was fulfilled the prophecy that Galahad the knight, without reproach, should sit upon the throne of good King Everlake, far away in the spiritual city. And now followed happy days for the people of Saros. Their new king soon caused a fair chest to be made and placed before the altar in the great cathedral before which he and his two companions knelt frequently in silent prayer. Rumour said that the chest contained the Holy Grail. One day, however, never to be forgotten of his people, Galahad whispered to his two faithful friends that he had now finished his work on earth, and that the time of his departure was at hand. "'Come with me, therefore, to the cathedral,' said he, "'for when my spirit leaves my body, you as well as I shall achieve the open vision.' They followed him in reverent silence to the holy place of worship, where, kneeling before the high altar, they beheld once again the form of Joseph of Arimathea, in his cloak and hood of spotless white, in a moment the three knights had fallen on their knees behind him, Galahad a little nearer than the rest, and thus they remained, while the saintly old man arose to remove the Holy Grail from its resting place within the chest. Presently he held it aloft, and now all three realised that they could at last see it plainly, for it was shrouded by neither cloud nor covering of silk. Nor was the light that streamed from it like the rosy glow of other days, for the blood which it contained now shone like a clear red gem resting in the pure crystal of the cup. And as they gazed it became brighter and brighter, streaming up among the arches of the roof, so that it seemed almost to be bringing to life old pictures and statues that had long been dimmed by the dust of the years and the smoke of incense. Suddenly the air became tremulous with melody. The very stones seemed to be bursting into the full harmony of song, the waves of music vibrated to and fro, now beating against the ancient walls, swelling into full chords like the roll of a mighty organ, then dying away into soft, far-reaching echoes, melting into silence and infinite peace. When the last note had sobbed itself into stillness, Joseph set the grail upon the altar. Then he turned toward the kneeling Galahad and kissed him on the forehead. As he did so, Bors and Percival perceived that the red robe of their beloved companion, the symbol of his earthly warfare, was about to drop from his shoulders, leaving him clothed in the spotless white garb of immortality. Then suddenly, Joseph and the Grail vanished from their sight, 
while all grew dark about them. After a while, however, they were able to distinguish the lifeless form of Galahad lying before them on the steps of the altar. That day, among the poor, blinded people, there was dole in the city of Sarus, but Bors and Percival could not mourn, for they had seen. Percival soon after found a cell outside the walls of the city, where he lived for a short time the life of a hermit in fasting and prayer. And Bors stayed with him till he died, then he buried him beside Galahad in the great cathedral after which he set sail for distant Britain. There he meant to relate to Arthur all his adventures in quest of the Holy Grail, but when he saw the condition of the White King's once beautiful realm, he found his lips sealed, so that he could only shake his head and answer with tears in his eyes. Ask me not, for I may not speak of it. Yes, I have seen. End of Tale 11 Recording by Rachel Maguire